This is the SLA Workshop Podcast, episode number three. Behaviorism and Behavior Theory. A very influential philosophy about how we learn languages. Have you heard about it? And have you heard about the audiolingual method? Well, in this episode, I am going to talk about behaviorism and the audiolingual method. So let's get started. Welcome to the SLA Workshop Podcast with Joel Sarate, the podcast that will expand your knowledge on how we learn languages and help you become a better language learner and better language teacher. And now your host, Joel Sarate. Ciao a tutti, come state? Sono Joel Sarate. Grazie mille per essere qui con me. Benvindus ao episodio numero 3, onde eu vou falar sobre a teoria de comportamento aplicada ao aprendizado de uma segunda língua. Welcome once again everyone to the Second Language Acquisition Workshop podcast. In this episode, I am going to talk about behaviorism and the audiolingual method. I hope you find this episode interesting and that it can help you in your journey to become better language learners and better language teachers. But before we get into the meat of our episode, or if you're vegetarian, before we get to the eggplant of our episode, I would like to thank all of you who have subscribed to my podcast. Thank you very much for supporting the SLA Workshop Podcast. I truly appreciate it. Also, if you have two minutes Please leave me a five-star review and leave me a comment about how this podcast is helping you so that other people who are interested in learning and teaching languages can join our community. Once again, gracias, grazie, cheche, spaziva, danke, merci, obrigado, arigato gozaimashita, kenki desuka. And thank you very much in all of the other languages. My goal is to produce one or two episodes a month. And I am actually behind because during the summer, I didn't have a chance to produce an, a new episode. But I'm back and I'm going to produce at least one episode a month. Having said that, now let's talk about behaviorism. So, in essence... Behavior theory, or behaviorism, came about as a theory that attempted to explain how we learn language in general. It was a conceptual framework that offered an explanation to how the learning of anything new took place as a process of developing habits out of getting some kind of a stimulus and responding to that stimulus. The stimulus would encourage us to react, to respond, and through this exchange, this back and forth, we would build our knowledge, our skill, through time 
and practice. So it was like they truly believe in the idiomatic expression we have that practice makes perfect. So just practicing and practicing to build the habits. The stimulus and response exchange would create the conditions for learning to take place. And within this conceptual framework, learning was visualized as the process of developing new habits. The interesting part about behaviorism is that at first it emerged as a theory to explain animal behavior. One of the most well-known behaviorists who attempted to explain animal behavior within a behaviorist framework was a, a Russian psychologist by the name of Ivan Pavlov. Pavlov basically carried out several experiments with a dog where he trained a dog to associate the sound of a bell with food for the dog, of course. Through this experiment, Pavlov taught the dog to associate the sound of the bell with food. With this experiment, Pavlov attempted to demonstrate that learning occurred when animals were able to create an association between an stimulus that would prompt a response. In this experiment, the sound of the bell represented that stimulus, which would create the association with food in the dog's mind in order to call the dog for the dog to eat or just to train the dog to come and make him think that there will be food for the dog available. So, as you would have guessed, after some training, the dog learned to associate the sound of the bell with food. So I'm sure Pavlov was very happy that he was successful. And this experiment was labeled as classical conditioning. And if I think about it, if someone invites me to conduct an experiment where they will train me to associate the sound of a bell with getting some guacamole and chips, I would participate in the experiment and I would let myself be trained. <laughs> so this is how behaviorism came about, by looking at animal behavior. And later on, Professor John Watson at the University of Co excuse me, at the Columbia University, not in Columbia, but in New York, Columbia, Columbia University. He was, at, he was at Columbia University and he extended classical, again, he extended classical conditioning, classical conditioning to not only explain learning on animal behavior, but to explain how learning took place in general, not only for animals, but also for human beings. In regard to language learning, one of the most influential figures when it comes to talking about behaviorism and language was Professor B.F. Skinner, who was an American psychologist at Harvard University at the time. Professor Skinner did attempt to explain human learning within a stimuli and response argument. 
But most importantly, for those of us who are interested on how we learn languages, Professor Skinner published a book called Verbal Behavior in 1957, where he talked about the process of learning a language for human beings. His work heavily influenced the way that languages were thought and greatly influenced the methodologies and strategies to learn and teach a language at the time. The most well-known approach that was influenced by behaviorism was the audiolingual method. And that is why I decided to also talk a little bit about the audiolingual method on this episode later on. So, learning languages from a behaviorist perspective was very simple. It was simply the process of developing habits based on our response to stimuli around us. Behaviorists described learning a language as just another type of learning, like when we learn tennis or when we learn to play the guitar. The key was to receive some stimuli that would encourage us to respond, to react, and to repeat and continue to practice and repeat and continue to practice and repeat. And yes, I said it again just to put more emphasis. <laughs> and so this repeated practice would enable us to acquire the skill or knowledge and the only part we will need would be some kind of reinforcement, mostly positive reinforcement. For example, if a child tries to say water but can't pronounce, can't say water and instead the child says wawa, wara, 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 wawa, then the mother could hold a glass of water, show the child the glass of water and repeat water to the child and then the child will try to imitate again water 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 and so the mother will praise the child and maybe give them give the child the water and whenever it happens that the child try to say water again then she will do this process again and with repetition then the child could have the opportunity to practice and develop pronunciation and language. So behaviorists would argue that this is how children begin to learn and master their first language through some stimuli and some kind of response that they will get from the child and the, the teacher or um, the mother in this case would provide some, some reinforcement. And this will be the process to begin to form habits for language learning. The way that behaviorists envision learning a language was through presenting to children the accurate and perfect string of sentences that we use so that they could hear it, repeat it, and practice it. And through this process, they could develop correct habits to internalize and ultimately master their first 
language. Now, the challenge for second language learning was that learners needed to develop new habits, but they also had the previous habits developed from learning their first language. And from the behaviorist point of view, previous habits, previous learning could be transferred in the new learning endeavor, the new learning journey. So in second language learning, one of the goals became to understand the old habits from the first language and how they could be transferred into new habits again for the second language or target language. Therefore, they looked at this transfer process in two categories, positive transfer or facilitation and negative transfer or interference. Basically, positive transfer or facilitation refer to correct correlation between the translation from the first to the second language and negative transfer or interference referred to the incorrect correlation between the translation from the first to the second language. And I know, I know, it sounds horrible. The facilitation of the correct correlation of the translation. <laughs> so let me explain with an example because it sounds terrible. It sounds cumbersome. For instance, let's consider the phrase for the weather in Spanish, hace calor, or fa caldo in Italian, in Italiano, or in Italian. <laughs> in English, we say it's hot and we use the verb to be. But in Spanish and Italian, to be is not used. What we use in Spanish is the verb hacer. And in Italian, the verb fare, which means to do or to make. So in Spanish and Italian, we basically say makes hot or does hot, which, by the way, would not make any sense in English. So, when we translate directly from the sentence in Spanish, hace calor, to fa caldo in Italian, we have the same verb and noun and structure. We have a coherent sentence. So, this is a positive transfer. Nevertheless, when you translate hace calor or fa caldo to English, and you get makes hot or does hot, that is a negative transfer. I can already imagine someone's face when they hear in English, oh, makes hot in here or does hot in here. What? It will not make any sense. This will be an incoherent and incorrect sentence. <laughs> so for behaviorists, the problem to solve when it came to learning or teaching a second language was to figure out, to identify, to tackle those parts of the first language where it could not be translated accurately to the second language. The parts where there would be negative transfer so that the teacher could address these areas and help students create new habits in the second language. 
in essence, the goal was to compare the first and second language to pinpoint the areas of the first language for negative transfer. That is to say, the areas where students would make more errors coming from the habits of the first language, when they would translate incorrectly from their first language to their second language just because they developed different habits. Of course, they assumed that the areas of the first language where there would be positive transfer would be easier to learn. The old habits of the first language where there was positive transfer would be easier to transfer to the second language. Based on this position and understanding of language learning, a point of view that was brought to the table to tackle these issues was the contrastive analysis hypothesis or CHA, which mainly saw the first language at the core of the problems to building correct habits in the second language or the target language. The key was to find the differences and the areas of negative transfer between the first and the second language or target language to help students transfer positive habits and build new habits where there were potential negative transfers. So from the constructive analysis or CAH, other branches also emerged like error analysis, which look at the type of errors that learners made and they were trying to understand where those errors were coming from and how to interpret them in order to look at the student's progress and how students were able to go from their old habits to their new habits. But for now, I'm not going to talk about that in depth. Perhaps on a future episode, I will cover the contrastive analysis hypothesis, error analysis, the difference between errors and mistakes, hierarchy of difficulty and markedness. But for now, it is not important to talk about that. Okay, now that you have some perspective on the behaviorist conceptual framework, we can turn our eyes, or actually, since this is a podcast, we can turn our ears to the audiolingual method, since it was heavily influenced by the behavior theory, and it continues to be used in some language schools, even though 60 plus years later, we know much more about how we learn languages, and that we don't really acquire a language simply by repeating sentences, by memorizing phrases, by focusing on mechanical drills or mimicry, mimicry drills, or by correcting every incorrect utterance that students make. But this is why I have created this podcast, to help you be informed and be a more effective learner or teacher. You can explore, experiment, and put to practice what resonates with you. So, the audiolingual method came about during the 1950s in the United States predominantly. 
And I am not going to talk about the historical details, but let's talk about the characteristics of the audiolingual method. What does it look like to teach or be taught using the audiolingual method? And, well, the first and most important aspect of the audiolingual method was to present language in a dialogue form. This would provide positive evidence to students, and that simply means the correct way to describe something in the second language or target language. So the dialogue could be acted out by the teacher two or three times, and the students would simply listen so that they could appreciate the sound, the pronunciation of the words, and the structure of the target language. After that, students would repeat the dialogue. The instructor might say one sentence and the students would repeat the sentence after the instructor. The goal was to help students be able to memorize sentences and produce perfect sentences as well as perfect pronunciation. Behaviorists, in essence, believed that we needed to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and, yeah, it was exhausting, and repeat again until you memorized sentences, until you internalized them and created new habits in your second language. Repetition and mimicry were central to be able to master a language. Those repetition and mimicry drills were very important in the audiolingual method. Also, the teacher played a central role in this method to provide positive evidence or perfect samples of language so that students can repeat and repeat and repeat. This would ensure that students would speak perfect sentences and it will prevent them from making errors. If students kept practicing perfect sentences, then they would never make errors. That was part of the philosophy of the audiolingual method. Activities were controlled so that students will not only make minor changes to practice the structures that they were asked to practice, but they will not be in a situation where they will be prompted or they will be able to make mistakes, make errors. For example, a typical drill would be changing one word in a sentence to practice the structure of that sentence. In English, if students were practicing I like or I don't like, for that matter, the teacher might say ice cream and the students would say I like ice cream. Then the teacher might say pizza and the students would say I like pizza. And then the teacher might say hamburgers. Then the students say I like hamburgers. So students would perform drills where the teacher would control the way that the students manipulated language. Teachers made sure that students would always produce error-free sentences and provided reinforcement to the students by repeating the sentences back to them when they mispronounced or 
they made a mistake on their utterance. Teachers also praised students when they will produce these correct sentences. They really tried to avoid errors because they believed that if students made errors, then they would develop bad habits. So with that in mind, as a student, if you continue to practice like this, do you think you could master the language you are learning, the target language? Or if you are a teacher, do you think that your students would learn the language if you keep drilling them? For example, another typical mechanical reel to learn Spanish is to give students one verb and have the students conjugate that verb for all the subject pronouns in order, yo, tu, el, and such. So once they finish conjugating the verb, then they get another verb and they do the same. They conjugate for all the subject pronouns and when they finish, we give them another verb and so just keep conjugating and plugging in the ending of each verb. Would that be a good and essential strategy? Well, today, most second language acquisition experts argue that drills like these mechanical drills, transformation drills, substitution drills, or chain drills don't help much to acquire a language. That is to say, be able to build your subconscious command of the language, your ability to use language instinctively. Let me try again. Instinctively, <laughs> like you do when you speak your first language. Some experts even argue that mechanical reels don't help at all, and it is just a waste of time. They say, just look at your high school Spanish or high school French or high school Italian. If your class relied heavily on mechanical reels, you probably don't speak much or you have already lost or forgotten everything you were supposed to learn. Instead, they suggest we should focus on meaningful drills or communicative drills. These drills mainly focus on meaning rather than features of language. In my personal opinion, we can use mechanical reels or mechanical reels for some specific purposes for limited situations and just a little bit in just a very limited amount of time. I agree with the consensus that relying heavily on mechanical reels is not very productive in the long run. I will talk about mechanical reels, meaningful reels, and communicative drills more in depth in a future episode. So what about learning vocabulary or grammar with the audiolingual method? Well, in the context of the audiolingual method, learning vocabulary was limited to just the vocabulary from the dialogues being presented. The only vocabulary learned came from the dialogue the students were trying to memorize. Teachers used visuals, props, and gestures to illustrate the vocabulary because teachers only use the second language or target language in the classroom. And in terms of grammar, there were no grammar lessons or grammar explanations. 
Students were supposed to learn grammar by noticing the patterns from the drills they would complete, like the example I mentioned before where students will use the phrase I like or I don't like, and students will say I like oranges, I like food, I like books, etc. And also, teachers would put an emphasis on drills where the first language was different from the second language. For example, in Spanish, a mí me gusta el helado would transfer in English as to me, me like ice cream. So, thanks to contrastive analysis, teachers would expect negative transfer and will drill this kind of structures to develop new correct habits in English. If you would like to see what a lesson using the audiolingual method looks like, I'll leave a link on the show notes to a YouTube video from a series of videos that Professor Diane Larsen Freeman developed to help language teachers experience some of these methods in the actual classroom. Professor Diane Larsen Freeman is one of the most respected scholars in the field of second language acquisition. She has conducted a lot of research, and she has been an important voice in our understanding of teaching and learning grammar. In fact, one of the most interesting books about understanding how to teach grammar was written by her. The book is called Teaching Language from Grammar to Grammaring, and this is a profound reflection on how we could approach teaching grammar as a skill, like the way we build listening or a speaking skill. It is one of my favorite books, and if you are like me, and if you like to learn as much as you can about teaching a second language, this is a book that you must have in your library. And by the way, I am not being paid or the sponsor to recommend this book. It is a book that I cherish and that I believe can take you to the next level in your experience as a language teacher. Well, okay, this is all for this episode of the SLA Workshop Podcast. Thank you for listening and for wanting to become a better language learner or a better language teacher. If you are a language teacher, my goal is to share with you what we know about how we learn languages so that you can be more effective and a more dynamic teacher. If you are learning a language, my goal is to help you be aware of how we learn languages so that you can have and you can develop better strategies for yourself and have a great experience learning another language. Lastly, before you go, please leave me a five-star review to help me grow and reach more people. If you have a minute, please leave me a comment as well to give new listeners an idea of what this podcast is about and how they can benefit from it. If you have suggestions, questions, or ideas for me to cover on this podcast, you can email me at SLA Workshop Podcast, one word, all lowercase, 
at yahoo.com. It is simply the name of the podcast, SLA Workshop Podcast at yahoo.com, one word, all lowercase. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode of the SLA Workshop Podcast. And for now, I'll just say hasta pronto. Adios. Thanks for listening to the SLA Workshop Podcast with Howell Sarate. We hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you again on our next episode. And for now, we'll just say hasta pronto. Adios.